Beloved, let's just continue that heart of worship into the Word, the revealed Word for us. Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Exodus 33. Exodus 33. If you're visiting today, a warm welcome to you and an invitation to take a copy of God's Word that you see in front of you, right in the racks, if you don't have your own. Turn to Exodus 33, second book of the Bible, Exodus 33. And Westmount, of course, we've seen in this book, in Exodus, the reality of God's presence with his people. We've seen that reality, God's presence with his people. God was present, remember, with Moses in chapter 3. And of course, through Moses, God delivered his people, chapter 14, so that he could present, or be present, I should say, with Israel, chapter 19 and on. He did all of that by way of Moses, through him, that deliverance, so that for the expressed purpose of being present with his people. And that's the signature of our great God. A God identified by presence. A God identified with being with his people. God identified his presence with his own. Westmount, as you consider peoples, as you consider groups, even religions in history, this reality is clear that God's presence alone, hear it, the reality of God dwelling with his people, amid his people, and with us, church, in his people, God's presence with God's people is the reality that sets his people apart from any other people group on earth. That's the reality. It sets you, Christian, apart from any other people group on earth. God's presence with his own, that is the mark. It is a glorious truth, beloved. It's a precious gift. It is our life and sustenance, yet we can forget it. We can take it for granted. Worse we can forsake and forfeit it. For God's people of ancient times, Israel, they did this. They trampled the gift. With instructions being given while they were to make a dwelling place for God's presence, they instead were busy making a dwelling place for sin. Where God was telling them how to make a golden sanctuary, do you remember that? For beauty and glory, they were demanding Aaron to make them a golden idol for lust and play. Again, we consider God's presence right there manifest on that mountain. The thunders, the lightnings, the thick clouds. Mount Sinai, do you recall, wrapped in smoke. The fire, the very loud trumpet blast. The mountain literally trembling with God's presence. And one might say if they cannot live with God's presence so felt, so real and experienced there, then what hope is there for any man or woman to live rightly in God's presence anywhere? Good question. The futility is fanned when we just take a moment to consider again the punishment that they earned. It's where we ended last time. Look at the last verse of chapter 32. Then, this is after the golden calf episode, then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. As we consider the golden calf episode and many such episodes in our own life, we are right to ask, we are right to ask and should, 
Are we simply incapable beings? Are we so ready and able to sin? And the answer is a resounding yes. There is no ability within us. No hope from within. You know, just consider with me for a moment what we've learned in Exodus and what you consider that you know in the Old Testament as Israel goes on. Could could a people ever work as hard and as diligent as Israel, right, to forsake God's presence? It's God's chosen people. If that people can work so hard to forfeit his presence, beloved, what of us? That's the sting of the golden calf aftermath. And beloved, I want you to know, especially in light of last week, I feel it with you. I feel it with you. If Israel can't hear, then the question is, who can? Who can? That was a hard chapter, a hard read, a hard reminder and sting, but it was needed. Friends, as the Bible reminds us, though, in account, in principle, in prescription, our ability, here it is, here it is, as we pick up from last week, our ability is not the end. Our ability is not the end. More, here it is, as I pray you sang gloriously this morning, our sin is not the end. Our great sin is not the end. Praise God for that, right? As Israel still digests, the, listen, the bitter water laced with ground-up golden calf, as that's still working its way through the digestive system, we will see this morning in this next chapter there is a way forward. God does not forsake. Here's your hope, beloved. God is still very much on the scene in the wake of that great sin. Mercy abounding, we will see warranted condemnation give way to a gracious call. We will see presence outside the camp, but a tent of meeting still erected. And we will see a most undeserving request and a truly remarkable answer. Yes, church, we will observe in this text before us God's presence preserved with his people. Let's open our study then with a consideration of just the opening verses of this next chapter. Let's go to chapter 33, verse 1. We read, The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Father in heaven, Lord, before this text we come, seeking, Lord, what you would have to say to us. By way of example in these Israelites, Lord, but most especially this morning, by the exact words in front of us. Lord, let us mind them, study them, understand them, receive them, and go forth and live them. 
Lord, will you be glorified, we pray. Amen. Again, we note off the top here, Israel has taken a step backwards. That would be a, an understatement of the highest order. They've taken a huge step backwards. God's presence with them has genuinely, we just read it, God's presence has been genuinely forfeited. Look back at verse 3. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but what? I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you're a stiff-necked people. That's clear. God says, I will not go up among you, yet they are still to go. How so? How so? What of another Amalek attack? What of the enemy within that we've seen already? Journey without God, really? I mean, what of God's promised presence? And we would say, yes, what of it? Let's see. So you look at our first piece in this account, repentance. Repentance. Again, with a plague still fresh. Again, look at the last verse of chapter 32. It's still fresh. In light of that, God has a charge to open this chapter. He says, it's time to leave Sinai. The time on Sinai is over. It's time to depart. And what is amazing here is not that God says to depart. It's not what's most amazing, but where to depart to. Look at verse 1. Israel, depart where? To the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Beloved, this is the first thing we must note here is Israel is given a way forward in the wake of their great sin. Don't miss this. It's first and foremost this, and ultimately God's plans do not change. Israel cannot affect God's plan. God's plans do not change. This is foundational to the preservation of God's presence that we'll see today. It is because, and mark it, it is because of God's word, not Israel's action, that a way forward has a context here. Do you see that? The way forward is because of who God is and what he's promised, not because of who Israel is and what they've done. Do you see that? And not only a way forward, but look at this, but the same way forward for God's people. God does not say, Israel, you sinned, so you know, depart to a different land or no land at all. God doesn't say, Israel, you sinned, now back to Egypt with you. Even as they shockingly want to at times. God, in the wake of their great sins, says, depart and onward to where? The land of promise. I promised you that land through Abraham, Genesis 15. I reaffirmed that promised land to you through Moses, Exodus 3. And now, in spite of your sin. Amazing. I'm affirming and directing you still there. Plan the same. Incredible. Same flowing destination. All the things flowing out of that land, the milk and honey. Same angelic escort. By the way, as we noted in Exodus 23, verse 20, all of that plan is still the same. God does not change. Our actions do not affect God's plan. God does not change, nor does His sovereign plan. And again, even more pointed in this text, our sin doesn't abort the plan of God. 
Our sin doesn't affect it. Now, what is Israel to say then? Should this make them feel a bit better about their sin? Is this what we've been waiting for? Good. Right? Can sin doesn't change the plan of God feel better? Israel, would they say, are they to continue in sin knowing that God's plan cannot be thwarted? No, to quote another saint, by no means. We note two things in these verses, and they are very paramount before we move forward. Number one, look at verse four. Israel mourns. Do you see that? Israel mourns. You might ask, well, why mourn if the plan is the same, right? In fact, if I was to paraphrase the modern church movement and say, don't spend time lamenting. Look, that happens. Sin happens. Rejoice in grace. He's the plan's the same. Just keep going, right? Grace is free. Come on. Don't spend time mourning over your sin. And you're still Canaan bound, right? Nothing's changed. Yes, but God has said they will do so. And look at verse 3. Without him. Beloved, listen, God may withhold the penalty to our sin like he does here. I mean, in one sense, corporate Israel still alive. But that does not mean he withholds the consequences of our sin. Very important difference. Penalty withheld, consequences different. Israel mourns because they fully understand the consequence of their great sin. And it's what? God's presence will be removed from them. And note the principle here, Christian, we can have future eternal security, but still walk a temporal journey in the wake of sin that feels very insecure. Let me say that again. We can have a future eternal security. Let us be clear on that. Secure eternally, but still walk a temporal journey in the wake of sin that still feels very insecure without God's presence. In fact, here for Israel, it is the epitome of insecurity. It is to what? It is to journey without God. Can there be anything more insecure than doing anything without God? That is one thing we note here, but it's observed alongside this. Secondly, Israel mourns. Look at verse 5. Look at God's command. In light of the prospect of such a forsaken journey, God calls on Israel to what? Take off their ornaments. I want you to look at the word ornament there. The word behind that refers to a very excessive accessory. This is bodily decoration and then some. By the way, this is not uncommon in the ancient Near East. And by the way, too, particularly in Egypt, they love their ornaments. Make no mistake, it was a very external visual practice, and here it is. It was materialism adorned. Israel presumably would have learned of this art of decking their body with ornaments while in captivity there. They would have then carried that practice with them. Remember, they plundered the Egyptians. They would have carried the practice with them into the wilderness, clinging to those ornaments, presumably, and right through to Sinai. And of course, that pagan practice would be the resourcing for their pagan-esque idolatry. We remember that last week. And view here would be the ornaments we witnessed. Think about chapter 32, verse 2. The rings of gold, to name one. The gold ornaments used to craft what? A golden calf. Here, God says, strip them off. So I even know what to do with you. Verse 5. 
It's like the little one that has the matches and he's burned up the, the rug in the hall and, and mom comes in. And there it is, caught, hand in the cookie jar moment. And before she can even do anything with him, what does she say? Get those matches out of your hand. Before we can even talk, get the matches out of your hand. But he's clinging to the matches. That's the scene here. God says, get those ornaments off. In other words, before there's even a way forward, beloved Israel, these need to go. And this call from God is a call to repent. It's a call as they mourn that says, you are mourning. And here it is, you're expressing repentance. You're speaking repentance. Now bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. Take off the ornaments. Take the instruments of sin, the ones that you use to sin with, and shed them. Don't just mourn with ornaments still all over your body. In other words, don't just mourn, you are sorry, Israel. Mouth it. Live and show it. Confirm it by shedding the ornaments. Church, let's not miss what we learn about the nature of repentance here. This is a powerful picture needed today. Repentance, listen, is not just mourning. It's godly sorrow that leads to action. Repentance is not just feeling sorry, feeling bad. Repentance is lived out, diligent sorrow. Repentance, the the gasoline of repentance is never again. I will shed those ornaments. And church, let us not miss the principle and point of repentance here. As we study God's word. Yes, there is a way forward. See it. Yes, it starts with God's mercy and grace to affirm his promise and his plan for his people. But with that, God calls on Israel to repent and they must. God says repent and they must. There is no way forward without repentance. Don't miss that. There's no way forward without repentance. Time doesn't heal it. A different perspective won't cure it. Repent. In God's plan, there's not just promise, but there is progress. And without repentance, church, there is no progress. There is no progress. Beloved, let us not cling to our ornaments. For us, they are so much more than bodily attire, are they not? We have so many ornaments. And we hold those ornaments so tight, don't we? Let us not create our many well-crafted reasons to hang on to our ornaments, to wear our ornaments. No, you know that often those same ornaments that you love sourced your sin. So you shed them. Don't let your decorations obstruct your pursuit of holiness. Forsake them. That's repentance. That's one. Key step four, but not the only one. Two, representation representation let's see this now continuing in verse 7 representation now moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp far off from the camp and he called it the tent of meeting and everyone who sought the lord would go out to the tent of meeting which was outside the camp whenever moses went out to the tent all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch moses until he had gone into the tent When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. 
Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. What is in view here is a tent of meeting, a tent of meeting, so-called in verse 7. Now, if you've been following along in our study in Exodus, you might ask, is this the tent of meeting? Is this the tabernacle, remember, that God instructed Israel to build? Is this the one? Well, it is not. This is a tent of meeting. It's not the tent of meeting. And we know that for quite a number of reasons, actually. Let's just state a few here. Number one, Israel has only, what, just received the instructions for building the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. However, so see, it's not built yet. It's not built yet. As a matter of fact, we're going to see the construction of it in chapter 35. In fact, we have chapters of the construction account there for that, the tent of meeting. Secondly, this tent is not only smaller. Look at verse 7. Moses can take it and pitch it himself. But three, this tent is also outside the camp. We know this is not the same one because Numbers 2 tells us that the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, was central in the camp. And fourthly, we observe in verse 8 that this tent is in the context of many tents. Did you catch it? Owned by each. So this smaller pre-tent of meeting, if you will, is what's in view here. A tent of meeting, yes, very personally for Moses. It's where Moses meets with Yahweh and presumably as he's continued to. But again, we mark that only Moses. He is thus the representative of the people before God. Moses meets with Yahweh on Israel's behalf. Of course, we're very familiar with that reality of Moses' role in Exodus. We've seen it often from the burning bush right up to the golden calf. Moses is representative. We've seen Moses stand for Israel. God has a message, a word for his people, and it's given by way of who? Moses. Moses. And we must comment again, as we did last week, the people need a representative. They need one. They need someone to stand in the gap between them and Yahweh. The people, the sinful people, need representation. Let's not miss this in Exodus. Someone they need, a representative like them, right? Someone like them, a fellow child of God, a human, and so on. But someone not like them, sinful, prone to grumble, Someone decorated in ornaments. And that unique one, like them but not like them, that one that is not like the others but like them, here is Moses. He is not only a unique Israelite, but one with a unique relationship to God. Look again at verse 11. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. The Lord spoke to Moses face to face. Do you see that? As a man speaks to a friend. That special relationship, Moses and Yahweh, is echoed, by the way, in Deuteronomy 34.10. It actually says, no prophet since Moses had this kind of relationship that Moses did face to face. None with a face to face relationship. Now, that is an expression that we know, and this is important as we read this text, And it's an expression when we say face-to-face, we use it commonly as an expression of intimacy, right? When you're face-to-face with someone. Face-to-face means that no prophet, no man had the kind of intimacy that Moses did. That's what's in view here. 
And face-to-face, as an expression of intimacy in this text, makes sense as the primary understanding, right? And why is that? Because we know, we know, reading all of our Bible, that God here is a spiritual being, not one with a physical body, right? Yahweh in Old Testament, God the Father, is a spiritual being. A prophet greater than Moses would remind us of this fact later of spiritual beings versus physical beings. A prophet greater than Moses would do this in Luke 24, 39, would say this, that a spirit does not have flesh and bones. We know that. Now, God does use flesh and bone pictures to describe relationship with his people. He does this because it's helpful for our limited minds. We see a face here in verse 11. Think about verse 22, which we'll read later. We'll see a hand and then a back in verse 23. Using body parts to describe relationship. And that's for our benefit because we're limited. So what we see here is the Bible ascribing human attributes to a divine spiritual being to help us understand the intimacy of that relationship. Further, we also know face-to-face must mean intimacy here because in just a few verses, look at verse 20, God will remind Moses of this. This is about as plain as it gets. You cannot see my face, Moses, for man cannot see me in what? Live. And the New Testament affirms 1 John 4.12 says no one has ever seen God. Now it is true that God allows likeness, earthly manifestations like, what have we seen? Thick clouds and a pillar of fire that allow earthly perceptions of his heavenly being. He allows that. That's true. Remember in chapter 19, Israel caught a glimpse of such manifestations on the mountain. You recall that. But friends, manifestations or representations are not the fullness of the whole. They are necessary and certainly here in Moses' representation. And that is what we grab before moving on. The reality of representation needed. The reality that someone can meet with God. That's ability. They can do this face-to-face, if you will, and continue to meet with Him face-to-face. The reality that Moses can represent Israel and more intercede for them. And you'll see how boldly he will do this even more in this chapter and beyond. And even more, the reality that someone can bring a request, even a bold request before God, and not only live, but have it heard and answered. Amazing. And that reality brings us to the final aspect of preserved presence here. We've looked at repentance, we've looked at representation, and here we will see, most amazingly, a request request. In truth, Moses will actually bring three requests before God here. So we're going to look at each one. There are three requests that he brings before God. I want us to look at the first one. Let's look at verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name. And you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. 
Moses, as we saw last week, is interceding here for the people. Look at the end of verse 13. In this intercessory request, Moses raises a very provoking point. Middle of verse 12, he says, You have not let me know whom you will send with me. That's a very interesting thing that Moses says. You have not let me know whom you will send with me. Now, we can't miss this here. This is outstanding intercessory effort here. We must say that. First of all, the promise of God's presence was one of the very first realities that God communicated to Moses on Mount Sinai all the way back when he called him. In Exodus 3, verse 12, God said, I will be with you. Remember that? And that was before Pharaoh. And then, of course, on the way into service, God said, Moses, Israel, I will be with you. God did let Moses know back then who would go with him. And Moses, as a great intercessor here, in the wake of something new in this great sin, has this provocative question for God. Moses here is doing the work of intercession. And we looked at this last week. Moses is pointing to a promise that God has made. In fact, he's rooting his intercessory work in a plea. And yet even more in this first request, we see Moses here tying this first request, this question, not to Israel. Don't miss this. He doesn't mention Israel in this first request. Did you note that? He doesn't say, who will go with us, God? Who's going to go with us? This band of sinners. Who's going to go with us? Even the most objective onlooker would say, well, no one. You forfeited all of that, right? He doesn't say that. In fact, I'd submit to you, that would be very ineffective after sin. That's a horrible object lesson, right? Nobody's going to go with you. Not when you're doing that. Not when that's who you are. No, Moses' request, look at this, by way of intercession, he ties the request to what? His own person, himself. He says, whom will you send with? Me. Me. The intercessor ties the request to himself. Beloved, what Moses is requesting here is a preservation of God's presence that's rooted to his intercession. He roots that request, yes, in God's promise, but he ties the request to himself. And of course, Moses stand there, stands there very much unlike the rest of Israel, doesn't he? He's not the one standing in the wake of the sin, right? Just like another intercessor that tied his request to himself. You know who he is. Jesus Christ. We saw that last week. And like we see with Christ, and we celebrate it already today, we have God's answer to an intercessor. Look at verse 14. And he said, this is Yahweh, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Can't miss these verses in details, folks. He had revoked presence, Yahweh, because of their behavior and their sin. And here, in a verse... He says, I will, because of the intercessor. I will go with you. And not only that, God is the God of more. My presence will go with you and more. I will give you rest. It's a positive answer and a positive affirmation and more. Presence and rest. By the way, that's the means and the end. And that is after one request. Now the second one. Let's take a look at verse 15. It continues. 
And he, this is Moses, continuing, said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses, look at this, he backtracks a little bit here as he seeks further affirmation. Almost as if he passes over God's answer. Did you catch that? It's almost like he just passes over it for a moment to keep pleading for presence. This is great intercessory work. And his reason is to, again, remind God of how he will be known on the earth. We looked at this last week, too. The great intercessor, right, does this. We looked at it last week. But here, another intercessor says, God, your presence with us is what makes us a distinct people. This intercessor, Moses says, your presence with us is what distinguishes us from every other people. Again, we note the work of Moses here, how he is working on behalf of Israel before Yahweh. And what is he doing here? Before the nations, this intercessor says, God, what of your glory? What of your fame? What of your reputation before the nations? The intercessor here, Moses, makes sure... God knows that his request is tied to his glory, God's glory. Again, we've seen that before. We won't read it again, but note John 17. What does the great intercessor do? He roots his request. And that's on the eve of the crucifixion, the cross. He roots it to the glory of God. That's what our great high priest does and in a lesser sense in By way of a picture of what great intercession is, we see Moses doing the same thing. Moses says, God, what about your glory? What about your glory? Verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. Wow. And then this, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Because Israel has found favor in my sight, because I know Israel by name, No, you, because of you, have found favor with me. And because I know your name. Wow, to be known by God. Here, we not only have the affirmative answer of God, but the reason. Look again. This very thing I will do. And here's the why. Because for you have found favor in my sight. Amazing. In fact, what the text is telling us here, and there's many other things going on in the eternal decree of God, but what God wants to present to us here this morning is this. Because of the intercessor and my favor with the intercessor, that's why I will preserve my presence. Isn't that amazing? Because of him, because he stood in the gap, because of his not you-ness, because of him and my favor with him. Westmount, we can't miss this. Because of the intercessor. Because of him, that's what the text is telling us. This very thing I will do because of him. The intercessor can intercede for God's people because he, not the people, we must press that, he has found favor, not them. Once more, beloved, consider Christ. Is that not what Christ has done for us? We are justified, why? Because of our great sins or maybe even how we feel about our great sin? No, we're justified, we are known by God. We are found favorable in that day, not because of us, this ragtag group of saints, 
Because of Jesus Christ. Will you look on Him? Will you look on Him? The great intercessor. This is what this text provokes in us. And once more, as you consider Christ, as you are looking on Him, and you're looking at His relationship to the Father, that special, unique relationship to the Father, carry that into verse 18. Moses said, and here it is, the third one, please, show me your glory. This is just simply an astounding request, is it not? Golden calf, again, the ground up bits all over the plague, people you pro- all over the place, and there's Moses standing, and Moses has the audacity to say, God, show me your glory. Before God Almighty, I would submit to you, beloved, that's not just bold, but that's confidence, right? That has to be. It has to be. I mean, what kind of man asks that of God? And in this context, what kind of man does that? A confident man, but the right kind of confidence. Let's consider God's answer in the wake of this intercessor that asked, verse 19. And he said, this is Yahweh now, Yahweh said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. There it is. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So much here. A couple comments before we consider the implications and we just need to slow down for a moment and digest what is going on in this account. Number one, God did not say no, did he? God didn't say no. See my glory? Moses, come on, you found favor, but come on. No, he didn't say that. He actually gives Moses, look at this, 19 to 23. He gives Moses all that any human being can bear. Did you see that? He says, all my goodness will pass before you. So all of the essence flowing out of who God is, I'll let that pass by you. And by the way, my name, which I introduced to you in Exodus 3, I'll let that come by before you again. Amazing. All that is good and right flows out of me. I'm going to let you see that. I'm going to pass that by you. Then he says, I'll put you in a cleft that's like a split of a rock. And I will pass you by, but watch what I'm going to do. I'm going to cover you. I will pass before you, but I will cover you. And if that's not enough, I'll remove my hand in part so you'll see a part of me, my back. That's number one. God doesn't say no. He says yes. Two, this glory showing is completely, don't miss this, a result of God's sovereign will. Do you see this? It's God's sovereign will. Look at the end of verse 19. Yahweh says, I will be gracious to who? To whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. What he doesn't say is what you might expect here, right? You might expect Yahweh to say, I will be gracious to those that ask of it. That's what we want to believe, isn't it? I will be gracious to the ones like you. You don't have ornaments on. And you're... 
Right? That's what you want the text to say. So often, battles in salvation theology miss simple truths like this. Yahweh says, Almighty Yahweh says, I'll be gracious to who? Whom I will be gracious to. I will show mercy, Yahweh's sovereign will, to whom I will show mercy to. There's no other condition. Yahweh's sovereign will has nothing to do with man. Nothing at all. And here in this great intercession, you would say, but Moses, I mean, he's the really ultimate Israelite. Yahweh says, in light of this great intercessor who's found favor with me, it's my sovereign will to show grace and mercy on whom I will. Astounding. And I would submit to you, by the way, we'll have more to say about this. That is the source of your hope. As we cling to our little golden calves and hope to be right in God's sight, praise God it is not about that. And His sovereign will and His work, not ours. Praise God. Paul, by the way, cites, if you look at verse 19, he cites this exact passage in Romans 9.15 when explaining God's sovereign will. Listen, to choose Jacob and not Esau. Those are two brothers. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. He chooses this passage, he goes to this passage, Paul, to demonstrate that it is Yahweh that's hardened Pharaoh's heart, and it's Yahweh that will eventually soften Israel's heart. All Yahweh. has nothing to do with man. And beloved, the point there is that salvation is a matter of God's sovereign will, and the point here in Exodus is similar. Let's grab it, and it's this, that God's glory revealed who he elects and chooses to show that glory to, to who, to where, to when, is only and solely a matter of God's will. God's glory, God's glory revealed to anyone is a matter of God's prerogative, his sovereign will. That's it. And why is that important? Because today, I would root this in, today it's never been about us calling down glory from God or singing about it and having him answer us. We do it this way or that way. And the golden glitter falls from the rafters or activating some secret power. It's not about that. No, that is perverse teaching on the glory of God. It's an abomination. God's glory, listen beloved, God's glory is God's choosing. God's glory is God's choosing. He is gracious on whom He is gracious. He is merciful on whom He is merciful. And listen, you can sing to that. You don't deserve it, but you got it. How is that? How is that? As we look for those shelves for our golden calves, right? How is that? How is that? Moses requests and God answers, but it is all according to God's sovereign plan. Now, one final consideration before we move off this text, and it begs it. We've been tracking with the smaller intercessor, the less, and we can't leave it there. What have we seen in Exodus from tabernacle to law, all of these points, previews, precursors, shadows, pointers to what? And it would be natural for us to expect here in Exodus, if this is the less, if this is the picture in Israel, then there must be a greater, right? There must be a greater one standing in the gap for his people. You'd be right. And even more, what of glory there? What of glory revealed there? What of this glory revealed then? Once again, we arrive at a text in Exodus that seems to give us something, in part, but not all. We arrive at a text in Exodus that seems to be pointing forward to something. 
And we cannot miss this. Think about this. God manifest in a burning bush. Seem to be something more. God manifest in smoke, cloud, and fire. Some of God in that sense. Some manifestation, but not God in full, or they would die. And here we get as close as man has ever been. Here in Exodus, we get as close as man has ever been. Consider the text again, that a man would come face to face with the living God. Moses experiences, listen, the face of God, that's intimate communication, the hand of God as a shield on a rock, and the back of God, an actual manifestation of God that this man is permitted to see. Westmount, that is the glory that Moses experienced. Yet again, what have we been saying in Exodus? This glory, like everything else, a preview, a pointer. Jeremy read it for us this morning. Consider again the glory described in John 1. We'll read you one verse, 114. And the Word, and as we read this morning, this is Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us. And then listen to the Apostle John. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.18 goes on to say this. Listen, no one has ever seen God. Wow, yet. Listen, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. In other words, if you know and have seen Christ... You have seen who? The Father. Glory revealed. That He is Christ. Not only glory revealed, but here it is glory in flesh. God made known. Christ, as Hebrews 1.3 tells us, is the radiance of the glory of God and what? The exact imprint of His nature. So we need not ask to see God's glory like Moses, because he's already given his glory. Christian, he's already given his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, Jesus Christ. We seek lesser glories, don't we? Struck as Jeremy was leading us this morning, like them seeking physical things. In the wilderness, right? Or, sorry, in the first century. Seeking food to fill a belly. Seeking the lesser glory of, from their own eyes, someone that can do amazing things. And what Christ was communicating in the first century is you settle for a lesser thing. Glorious, miraculous, metaphysical, supernatural. And you're chasing that. I have bread to give you, and you will never go hungry again. And more, tied to our text, as the text does itself. I have a glory revealed to you that you would know the Father and see Him. Here again, the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made known. And how we yearn for experience and feltness in our Christian walk, don't we? 
We chase experience like a carrot on a stick. I won't read my Bible if I don't feel it. I won't obey if I don't feel it. I won't go to here and do that if I don't feel it. And I don't feel it. I need to feel God's glory. And on and on it goes. Yet you desire to see God's glory, beloved. Listen to me. Look on Christ. Look on Him. You have in front of you the most amazing words to describe the perfection of the Son. Can you behold Him? You want to behold God's glory. Listen to me. Look on Christ. His work. You want something glorious. You want to see the glory of God? God that would make a way and a progress for a people that would worship a calf instead of Him. You want to see God's glory in your own life that you even have a way forward, rebel. And He came after you in your rebellion. And He saved you. You want to see glory. Look on Christ. Glorious. God is revealed His glory in His Son. And I hope at this point, it hardly needs to be said. He is much more than we need and that we think we do. Look on Christ. God's glory revealed. And as we look on Him, let us give Him the glory that He is due. Father, we thank You for Your Son, Jesus Christ. The glory revealed more than the pictures in the wilderness of the face, of the hand, of the back, the fullness of your glory in Jesus Christ. Lord, what can we say to such things? Lord, you are a gracious God, benevolent God, to condescend to give us your Son. And Lord, we pray that we can live in light of the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ. We can behold his face with that intimate relationship that we have in him. Oh God, help us to do so, we pray. Amen.